To Nature Bet's last on the Progressive Radio Network. It's NBL on PRN.FM. This December 2020 edition, episode 145 of Nature Bet's last, comes to you live from Rakino Island in Aotearoa and also from Central Florida in the United States. This is Kevin Hester and I'm again joined today by my co-host Professor Guy McPherson. So today's show includes a conversation with Dr. Andrew Glickson, who Guy and I have interviewed twice previously on the show. You can find those episodes in the show archives. Thank you, Kevin. We are ecstatic to have renowned geologist Dr. Glickson join us today. We will focus on his latest book, The Event Horizon, Homo Prometheus and the Climate Catastrophe, published by Springer. We will take your toll-free calls today. Please call us with your questions and comments after we spend a bit of time with our guests. We are most easily reached with a toll-free telephone call to 888-874-4888. Kevin, will you do the honors? Dr. Andrew Glickson is a geologist living in Australia. He is an earth scientist and paleoclimatologist, currently serving as visiting fellow at the Australian National University where he splits his time between climate, the Climate Science Institute and the Planetary Science Institute. He is the author of dozens of, of articles and 11 books. Dr. Glickson was kind enough to share an advanced copy of his latest book with us for this conversation. Welcome back, Dr. Glickson, to Nature Bats Last on the Progressive Radio Network. Yeah, good day. How are you, Kevin? Wonderful, sir. Thank you for once again giving us your valuable time. The first thing I'd like to ask about the new book is what motivated you to write this book and what is the main takeouts that you'd like your readers to, to learn from it? Uh, thank you, Bozette. Uh, I need to ask you, is this a live recording? Because it's a very yes, weak line and I can just hear you. Okay, I'll speak up as much as I can. Sorry. You yeah, are live on the radio now. It is live. Yes, indeed, it is, sir. Is this, is this a live recording or is this a pre-recording? No, no, it is live. This is, we're on, we're on here at the moment, so we'll just have to make, make do with the audio as best we can. 
Can you repeat the question, Kevin? Okay, what, what I'd like to know is what was what motivated Andrew to write this latest book and what was the main takeouts that you would like your readers to get from it? Yeah, okay, well, developments with the climate are extremely fast. As, as soon as you uh, read or write or learn of the news, uh, within a few days or so, uh, new um, developments are taking place. And there is an avalanche of reports and of papers. So I'm basically trying to make sense of some of it. Uh, my background is in the um, history of the atmosphere and ocean. My background is in the history of the atmosphere-ocean system. And with this perspective, what is happening now is uh, truly frightening. Um, I wish I could... Uh, communicate some good news, but what is happening is truly frightening. Guy, would you like to ask Are you the there? question? Yes. You, you okay, well, I'll go ahead, Andrew. Um, one of the... the uh, uh, you sent me an article uh, that was posted on the Arctic News blog. And the title of it was Accelerated Global Warming and Stadio Cooling Events. The IPC, IPCC oversights regarding future climate trends. I would really like to uh, delve into the fact that the IPCC is continuously behind the ball and are underestimating the, the rapidity of this extinction event. Could you give your thoughts on that, please? Well... It's both underestimating, but it's also um, has been projecting linear development, linear uh, warming trend. Now, the total warming might be similar to what the RPCC is indicating, but the linear trend is uh, misleading, really, because we're not looking at uh, smooth warming. We're looking at an increasingly unstable and stormy uh, world in the sense that the boundaries between climate zones are weakening and the climate zones are moving, expanding, and migrating. And this triggers uh, tipping points and extreme weather events. So what the IPCC... The IPCC is completely uh, comprehensive and reliable when it comes to trying to document what is actually happening at the present time, and to a large extent what has uh, transpired in the history of the atmosphere. However, when it comes to projections, to me, they are unreal. Why? Because they um, do not make much sense in terms of what we know about the evolution of the climate. I'd like to back up a little bit, Dr. Glitzen. Thank you, first of all, for joining us on the air again. And my first question is... Oh, good day, Guy. How are you? My, my first question is actually two questions based on your latest book, The Event Horizon. What is The Event Horizon, and why should we be concerned? Well, yes. Uh, the term climate change, again, is far from, uh, um, far from correct, in my view. We're not looking at a change. We're looking at a sharp, abrupt event. 
it's only what, 50, 60 years since um, the climate has accelerated in about 1970, 1975. Until then, it was serious, very serious warming, but nothing like the acceleration which we see since uh, 1975, I'd say. Since then, it is an abrupt event. Uh, the composition of the atmosphere is changing at a rate that we don't see in much of the geological past. Well, there are such events, but caused by different factors, um, such as major volcanic eruption or an asteroid impact. But we don't see anything like this uh, within the last few million years. Uh, so I'm calling it an event, um, the event horizon, uh, for this very reason. And based on your past experience, which is considerable, especially with respect to mass extinction events, it, you've indicated that the one we're currently experiencing is occurring much faster than others. Can you talk a little, little bit about the potential consequences of this rapid rate of environmental change? Sorry, um, the line is weak, and I have not heard your question precisely. But I guess you're asking me about the ice sheets, are you? No, I'm asking about the potential consequences of this very rapid rate of environmental change that is ongoing with this current mass extinction event. Yes, well, it's occurring within our lifetime. The consequences are all around us. Uh, you open the papers and every other day there is uh, serious hurricanes there are horrible fires. We just experienced uh, last summer uh, a fire which has destroyed a huge part of uh, our native forests, mostly in eastern Australia. Uh, it's happening now. Uh, not everywhere, not all of the time, but uh, when you follow the news, it hits um, different regions, for example, the Caribbean, the Philippines, the Philippines uh, are regions which um, are coming under increasing stress. So, so the hurricanes, the fires, uh, are uh, and the manifest, uh, manifestation of uh, this event horizon, this extreme event. And we are in the eye of the storm. People are aware of it, but people at the same time uh, are not being told the, the full truth about uh, the severity and the direction in which um, the world is going. Andrew, there was an incredible event that took place in New Zealand as a result of the fires that were happening in Australia in the last fire season. The smoke and soot was so dense that it was, it was carried across the Tasman Sea to New Zealand. And we could see it. You could literally see it in the, in the atmosphere. And a whole lot of that soot landed on our glaciers and turned them pink and sped up the, the melting on our glaciers in New Zealand. It's incredible that those fires could have that direct result on the other side of the Tasman Sea. Yes, that's right. And it goes further than New Zealand. Uh, they smoke has gone uh, into um, somewhere in the central South Pacific, uh, it comes to show uh, the effects of fires. Uh, 
I mean, the amount of carbon dioxide which was released from these fires is almost uh, similar to what Australia emits otherwise um, every year. Uh, and then there are, of course, the fires in California. Uh, this, if there were isolated events, it would have been one thing. But this is very much a part of the trend. Uh, much of the Earth is um, now subject to uh, severe fires, including the Arctic. There are fires in uh, Siberia, in uh, Scandinavia, in um, Alaska, in Greenland. Now, the fires there are a result, uh, as you probably know, from the weakening of the um, jet stream, which is the boundary between the uh, Arctic and the northern latitudes. This boundary was pretty sharp and effective in uh, uh, limiting the extent of um, migration of uh, cold air masses and warm air masses. Uh, I mean, there are tropical uh, fronts coming from the south and there are Arctic fronts coming from the north. They were limited in the past, but now the weakening of the jet stream of the vortex, Arctic vortex, the polar vortex, uh, allows uh, this uh, storm, this air masses to penetrate. And, of course, you know about the beast from the east and so on. Exactly uh, what smooth. you said about the, the jet streams uh, meandering and, and um, changing. That, that Saharan dust was carried across the Atlantic and dumped in the Arctic, and that lowered the albedo as well. It's sort of incomprehensible that it could be changing so radically in such a short amount of time before our very eyes. Yeah, before our very eyes. The albedo is uh, decreasing, of course, as the uh, open water are exposed and the ice sheets are melting. What about, I think, one-third of the Arctic Sea has, uh, Arctic Sea ice has gone at this stage. Um, and the warm fronts penetrate from the south. So this means that uh, the migration or the opening of the boundaries of the climate zones is changing the um, climate pattern of the Earth in a fundamental way, again, before our eyes. Uh, the entire pattern means now that uh, the boundaries which did exist uh, are weakened and no longer are able to limit the, um, the clash between um, cold and uh, warm uh, masses of air. So you get storminess basically everywhere, whether it's um, um, on the margin of the poles or whether it's in the tropics. So basically wherever you look, uh, you get increased storminess, which means cyclones, hurricanes, um, and the fires are a part of it. And speaking of fires, the abstract of your latest book on the Springer website raises the question whether a criterion exists that fundamentally distinguishes humans from other species and then goes on to suggest the use of fire as such a criterion. Thus, the title of the book, The Event Horizon, Homo Prometheus and the Climate Catastrophe. How does our use of fire distinguish us from the other great apes, and why is Prometheus central to your story? Well, as you know, Prometheus uh, is a Greek uh, titan who has uh, stolen the fire from the gods and given it to humankind. Uh, so he is a, 
he is responsible, he is a culprit. And it's a symbol for the way we are, what we are doing. Uh, we are Prometheans in the sense that we are the only species which has mastered fire. And, well, that's more than a million years ago, of course. And at this stage, uh, fire has allowed us to develop an industry to dig and burn coal and oil and gas and with the consequences which are upon us. Uh, the other thing I like to say is basically what you're looking at is that the train has left the station. When you read about the rise of temperatures, which uh, NASA and NOAA define as approximately one degree above pre-industrial, in fact, on the continent, it's already about 1.5 and more. And when you take into account the um, role of aerosols, which are still um, cooling the air, so on average, by about, well, perhaps 0.5 a degree or so, although the aerosols are not uniformly distributed, if you take the aerosols into account, we are at 2 degrees, which means... Two degrees, that's almost 50% of what's considered to be the ultimate, according to Shelen Huber, uh, that's a German chief climate scientist, and others. Four degrees, according to them, means civilization, which means civilization can hardly cope with four degrees. And we are already half the way there. We're already halfway there. I'd like to get back to uh, the Arctic sea ice um, issue again. Um, as most of our listeners will know, there's been a, um, a catastrophically slow refreeze in the Arctic this year after reaching the sea ice minimum. And we've lost most of the old fast ice or the, or the older ice. And on the bottom of that ice is, is algae and an, an entire ecosystem that is... A fund is fundamental to the marine food web. My question is, how how much of a danger do you think the loss of the sea ice is to the Arctic marine food web? Yes, there is the albedo, of course, uh, which you already mentioned. Now, the algae and the krill also, little crustaceans, they form the base of the food chain. And so, uh, as they weaken and they die, then the whole food chain of the Arctic, and to some extent the um, oceans surrounding the Antarctic, is uh, weakening. Um, there is a lot of literature now about what's happening to the microflora and to the krill under the ice. Uh, in one sense, because the ice is uh, thinning, there is more light coming through to... Um, and reach the flora, microflora, and the plankton. But uh, this is relatively short term because once the ice goes, there will be no uh, very little microflora and krill. The food chain of the Arctic and also the surrounding Antarctic, although Antarctic is a very, it's a very different case. It seems to be happening slower in Antarctica than it is in the Arctic, possibly because of the sheer mass of it. But what we're seeing in New Zealand now is we seem to be getting um, much more disrupted weather, getting cold spells in the middle of our, you know, supposed to be warming up now. So I wonder now, is the same thing starting to happen to the southern hemisphere jet streams that you've written about previously in the, in the northern hemisphere? 
So you're saying that you're seeing more uh, storminess in, in our New Zealand? Is this what you're saying? No, I think not so much more um, storms as such, but what we're doing is we're getting more cold weather leaking out of the Antarctic than I would have expected at this time of year. So I think we're seeing a similar sort of disruption. Well, in principle, that's true, although on a different... Yes, in principle, what you say is true, but it occurs on a different scale. In the north, there is what's called a beast from the east, which comes uh, through Siberia and over to northern Europe, including England and so on. It's huge snowstorms also in North America. In the south, uh, you will have leaks of... Uh, you get um, ice melt, which results in regions of um, cold water around the Weddell Sea, for example. And uh, this cold uh, font or masses, they leak to the north, uh, although it has not reached the scale or magnitude as it has in the Arctic. Um, what, would you, what do you think is going to happen to the AMOC, the Atlantic Meridional Overturning Circulation? There is evidence that that is slowing down. What are your concerns when it comes to the AMOC? Yes, it's weakening very significantly, and there are a lot of reports about it. Uh, there is a large pool of um, cold ice melt water south of Greenland, which was um, documented by the German... Uh, Potsdam Institute, and uh, there are other indications that the uh, circulation of the um, North Atlantic current is is weakening significantly. It's weakening significantly. This is so fundamental to all the weather on the planet, and it's weakening significantly. It's a it's a terrifying um, possibility that it could get even worse or even shut down. And where do you well, think that you would see lead, what happens. Uh, well, you see what happens in different regions uh, is actually ultimately triggered by the migration of the climate zones. The tropics are expanding. The mid-latitudes are getting more rain and snow. And the polar regions are warming, although at different rates. So... Uh, you can look, of course, at the isolated or individual or regional uh, developments in terms of storminess, in terms of heating or cooling. But ultimately, when you're looking at the underlying factors, it's the shift or the migration of the climate zones, which is disrupting the old uh, climate zones and boundaries and resulting clash of uh, cold and warm air forms. Um, I'm actually in the process of writing an article about it. But what I'm saying is is in the sense of a review. It's not new. Uh, but I am essentially looking at what's happening now in terms of paleoclimate processes. And when you look at it this way, what's happening now is already uh, got the magnitude of the last uh, termination, the last glacial termination, which is between uh, 21,000 and about 10,000 years ago, which was, well, it took at least 10,000 years or so. When you compare this, and this was five degrees, it was five degrees um, warming and uh, about almost 100 meters sea level rise. What happens now is happening an order of magnitude to two orders of magnitude faster 
than the last glacial termination. Well, that can't be good. I'd like to now talk about um, the elephant in the room, as you described it in some of the literature that you show, you've sent to me. The elephant in the room that no one wants to talk about, methane. What are, you, what are your thoughts on methane? And, and I, I don't know if you're aware or not, but um, Dr. Peter Warrens, one of the most experienced uh, sea ice experts on the planet, has recently been attacked because of his talks about the threat of methane. Why, why is the stigma about us talking about methane? Well, it is elephant in the room. Uh, it's got a radiative uh, force, which is initially about 80 times more than carbon dioxide. Then it declines to about 25. But the uh, atmospheric concentration of methane since the uh, well, industrial age has begun has risen from about 600 parts per billion to now it's just under 2,000, about 1,800 or so. This is a threefold increase uh, in the um, higher latitudes. But now methane is also emitted from uh, fracking, uh, drilling fracking of, uh, um, of carbon sim gas, um, which is occurring uh, well in uh, the USA, in Australia, in other parts of the world. It's a very effective way of producing energy and a very effective way of raising, raising the methane concentration of the atmosphere as well. So you're asking about methane. Yes, it's a, it's a time bomb. Uh, the methane, of course, oxidizes slowly, and so far it's mostly concentrated at higher latitudes in the north, but its effects uh, are flowing over to the rest of the world, the rates are not known exactly, but um, uh, it, of course, has been reported, as you know, by the Russians, except for, I suppose, political reasons. Uh, some people in the West uh, do not believe the Russian data, but uh, when you look at uh, Siberia, large part of it is heavily cratered by uh, methane explosions. Uh, this tells a story in its own right. You mentioned that methane is initially about 80 times more powerful than carbon dioxide as a greenhouse gas, and that it drops to about 25 times later. But as I understand it, that decline to about 25 times greater only occurs if methane decreases in the atmosphere. And once it seems to me that once we get the methane increase in the atmosphere, it's not going to go, it's not going to go down. It's not going to decline anytime soon. Can you comment on that? Have I got that backwards? Well, it declines because it gets oxidized, and it depends on which level of the atmosphere you're looking at. Methane is relatively heavy gas, uh, so it will tend to descend. Uh, to levels where there is a lot of oxygen, so much of it does get uh, oxidized. Now, the rate at which it uh, uh, turns into carbon dioxide uh, is, I think, between 50 and 100 years. Uh, 
this will depend uh, on regional, on local circumstances. One of the things I note about our uh, previous discussion about the IPCC is in the IPCC representative uh, concentration pathways, they're not talking about any methane coming out of the Arctic until the end of the century. And, you know, you and I and, and Guy have seen an enormous amount of evidence to say it's being released at the moment. Some of these pingo holes are a kilometre across. That takes an extraordinary amount of pressure to blow that land away. Well, yes, it has tripled, uh, like I said before, from 600 to just under 2,000. Uh, and you get all the craters. You get so much evidence uh, that, so that the objection is ooh, not purely... I don't get the impression the objection uh, is purely scientific. There are politics involved. There are a lot of people who don't want to alarm the public too much. And, of course, there is the East and the West. There's a gap in uh, trust between um, Western scientists and the famous Russian scientists. So um, I don't want to talk about the politics of it, but um, it is a pressure on the IPCC. Uh, they, uh, the reports, the scientific papers on which the IPCC are, is based are essentially the best evidence we have. However, when it comes to future projections, they have neglected a number of um, developments, which is hard to understand. It's hardly, the report hardly mentions studials, and yet there are now important papers uh, in the literature, peer review papers, uh, for example, by, by Hansen and his group, which um, point out to the development of studials, which is basically cooling of part of the ocean due to um, ice melt water. Uh, I cannot understand it. Something is not right here. The linear trends which the IPCC portrays, that's not right either. Uh, it's not consistent with anything we see even in the recent climate history of the Earth, the quaternary. And then there are other. The rate of um, ice sheet breakdown has been underestimated by the IPCC. So I worry about what people say it could have been politically influenced. Yeah. When, when, it, when I think about the IPCC, I think about this quaint old scientific tradition that's been thrown in the garbage can. Uh, it used to be the precautionary principle. I don't see anyone using the precautionary principle anymore. Well, uh, Hansen called it uh, scientific reticence. Uh, scientists, all of us, including us, including me, um, are reluctant to um, convey or broadcast news which uh, frighten and even shock other people. It's just human nature. I mean, who, who wants to be a Cassandra and go and propagate ah. news which amount to, well, amount to the end of nature as we know it? We don't want to do it. I don't want to do it. And yet uh, scientists owe it to um, communicate the evidence. There's no way out of it, uh, or otherwise we become denialists. Uh, it's, it's a terrible bind. It is indeed, and it's why I'm so always so grateful to have you to come on the show to talk about it, because you don't suffer from that reticence. Hey, another thing that you've spoken about uh, regularly in, the, in your books 
is military conflict and the role that military conflict is playing in the whole um, dichotomy. You know, the Pentagon is one of the largest consumers of fossil fuels on the planet. What, do you have continuing concerns that as habitat uh, disappears at various places on the planet, that we'll be fighting over the last bits of habitat? Well, yes, it's very well known that there are military forces worldwide, and particularly in the United States, are responsible to major emissions of um, carbon around the world from the Navy, the Air Force, and so on. Uh, the point about the military to me is the military worldwide is uh, using, consuming several trillion dollars every year. This is precisely <clears throat> the resource which needs to be directed to, if possible, sequester or down draw um, carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. The reason that down draw has become essential is that now that uh, the level of carbon dioxide combined, combined with methane, combined with nitrous oxide, has now reached uh, approximately 500 parts per million, that's CO2 equivalent. This is generating amplifying feedbacks from land and ocean, which means no matter to what extent we reduce our emissions, which, <clears throat> of course, we have to do, the uh, level of um, uh, the radiation from the atmosphere at this level of carbon dioxide is generating amplifying feedbacks. And the only way, in principle and theory, is to draw down, sequester. For this, you need funds. You need budget of the size used by the military, trillions. And I wish I could see other ways of trying to well, um, arrest the warming of the atmosphere, cool the atmosphere. But apart from drawdown, which has been tried locally and to a limited extent, I cannot see what can be done. Well, that, that's another reason why I have issues with the IPCC. In the uh, representative concentration pathways, <clears throat> they have factored in carbon capture and storage technology that doesn't even exist at scale. That's how, that's how um, bad and how laissez-faire some of those decisions have been made by that organization, in my opinion. Well, yes, the models lag far behind the reality, and some of them are not even correct. Uh, this linear uh, trajectories, which you see in IPCC report, going to um, the end of the century, even to 2300 and further, these linear models and the uh, calculations which suggested they can be flattened and uh, even reduced, uh, where it's not even specified how it will happen. This is theory, but uh, I myself tend to look at the evidence, both at present, but also the paleoclimate evidence, and have, have some questions about these models. <clears throat> yeah, I've, I've always had a, a huge respect for field researchers like yourself and Peter Wadhams, who have done a lot of their science out in the field. On that subject, I noticed that the BBC published an article a couple of days ago titled Polar Scientists Weary of Impending Satellite Gap. 
as the two satellites dedicated to observing the poles are almost certain to die before replacements are flown. You know, we're about to lose some of our satellite um, research sat uh, satellites. So I think that's going to be another issue where we'll be going back to the models and the models aren't telling the truth, whereas these satellites can actually tell us what's happening on the ground. Yes, that's right. Well, I don't know about the degree of research, but uh, as we know, uh, in the United States under Trump, some of the funds required for climate research have, have not grown or possibly even reduced. Uh, well, following up what's happening almost week by week, month by month, uh, it's not a very encouraging thing to do. The point is now, what can be done to arrest this rise, rise in temperature? And I cannot see the political classes uh, doing very much in this regard. Uh, much of the time, it doesn't seem to me they are telling the whole story or even telling the truth. I want to back backtrack just a little bit. In, about two weeks ago, in your November 16th, 2020 article for the Arctic News blog, you indicate that the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change's fifth assessment downplays the importance of stadial cooling events. That, that paper is titled Accelerated Global Warming and Stadial Cooling Events, IPCC Oversights Regarding Future Climate Trends. Will you let our listeners know what, that, what a stadial cooling event is and what, what comprises a stadial cooling event and what are the potential consequences? Yeah, well, essentially, it's the flow of uh, ice melt water into the oceans, which you can see in, uh, especially south of Greenland, especially in parts of um, the ocean fringing Antarctica, like the Weddell Sea. Uh, in uh, the North Atlantic, uh, the German uh, Ramsholt has reported uh, a very large uh, study of south of Greenland. Now, this study has been well-pronounced uh, through the uh, history of the glacial-interglacial uh, cycles. When you look at uh, the graph of the temperature graphs of the glacial-interglacial cycles, you see that every time there was a peak warming occurred, and several times, at least eight times recorded in the ice course, it was followed by strong cooling. And the most pronounced one is the Younger Dryas. I'm sure you know about that. The Younger Dryas lasted uh, about uh, 11, 1200 years, uh, between 1200, between 12,000 years ago and 11,700 or so years ago. And uh, the temperature plunged. It's following a peak, peak temperature before then. The temperature plunged by several degrees and uh, much of uh, the Northern Hemisphere, particularly to some extent Antarctica also, have cooled abruptly. And it's called Younger Dryas because of a flower called Dryas flower, uh, which uh, appears uh, under cool climates. The Younger Dryas is it's a hallmark of what, what could happen. It's, well, it's a huge event. There's quite a bit of literature about it. Uh, you read about it, you read about a major abrupt cooling event. The cooling occurred within 
in some estimates, actually, by Stevenson and others, it occurred within a few years. Why? Because of the um, amplifying effect. Just you get amplification when uh, the ice melts, but you also get amplification when the uh, water freezes. Uh, what we're looking at now is, and James Hansen already delineated uh, studials, although he delineated minor studials, in about the middle of the century, 2050 or so. It's in his model, uh, his 2016 paper with a large number of um, American paleoclimate scientists. Uh, the younger dries is uh, something which is, to me, it's over the horizon, although we can't say how big and we can't say when it will happen exactly. Uh, it's uh, inevitable on the basis of two things. One, the paleoclimate record, which it just talks about, and the other one, what we're already starting to see. Well, that sounds like good news to me. I read and hear about the temperature rising, and you're talking about the temperature plummeting. Now, the average listener would think this is good news. What's wrong with this story? Sorry, I'm sorry, I missed you. It's Again, it's a weak line, and I'm having difficulty in identifying exactly what you and what Kevin are saying. You indicate that the younger dryas will cool the planet, or at least in, in certain regions. And I constantly hear that the overheating of the planet is going to be problematic. If the younger dryas, or if a younger dryas type event cools the planet in the wake of what appears to be a warming climate. Isn't that a good thing? Well, whether it's good or bad, it's our human perspective, but uh, <laughs> this is why this linear projection by the IPCC are to me very suspect, that we're not looking at smooth linear warming. Uh, what we're looking at is a stormy, unstable, highly unstable climate. The time frame is not clear. The magnitude of these oscillations of these disturbances is not clear, but when you get warming to the extent that uh, we are looking at now, we already at well, up to two degrees on the continents, then a lot of ice melts. There are only limited um, volume of ice in Greenland, uh, which would, well, when it melts, it raises sea levels by six or seven meters. But there is a huge amount of ice in Antarctic, and it's already melting in some parts in West Antarctic. Once it melts, if it melts, once it melts, there will be major effects on the southern oceans. And there is a very important paper about the cooling of the um, southern oceans. I'm trying to remember the name of the author, but I will send it to you anyway. Also in that Arctic News blog paper from November 16th of this year, you described the weakening of the jet stream and the migration of climate zones as indications of Earth's energy imbalance. You've already talked a little bit about the migration of climate zones in some detail. What about that weakening of the jet stream? Can you explain to our listeners how that might play out and what the likely consequences are? Yes, yes, it's very much at the center of it. The weakening occurs because the Arctic warms faster than any other latitude. 
the Arctic has warmed on average, I think, by 2.2 degrees. But locally, regionally, there are reports now, and I've just been reading one of them, that it's been warming uh, above 4 degrees and in some cases close to 10 degrees Celsius. So, um, let me see. You were asking me, sorry, I lost the thread of our conversation. You were asking me again? What is the what are the implications of a weakening of the jet stream? Where does that take us? Yes, yes, indeed. So, since it weakens, since the Arctic warms two or more or more times faster than the the northern latitudes, or rather the mid-northern latitudes, the uh, temperature contrast between across the jet stream, which is a boundary actually, the temperature contrast is lesser and lesser. As the boundary weakens, the fronts uh, can cross, uh, masses of air can uh, cross across the boundary. Now, these are the cold masses of air which uh, penetrate into Europe, Northern Europe, the UK, uh, Russia and Siberia, and North America, of course. They penetrate and they result in this beast from the east type of snowstorms. On the other hand, there are tropical air masses which can also penetrate from the south. And that's where you get the uh, heat waves and the fires in um, Alaska, in Greenland, in Siberia. So um, this is not published um, in a number of papers. Uh, I've uh, written about it. Uh, I can certainly send you my more recent papers in this regard. But the boundaries weaken. It's not the only boundary, not the only jet stream boundary which weakens. Other boundaries weaken too, as the airs which originally had extreme uh, climate zones, uh, tropical and arctic, now it starts to uh, become more uniform, uh, homogenized. when it becomes more uniform, it means that uh, cold and hot, cold and tropical air masses collide with each other to a greater extent than they have before. The description of your latest book, which again is The Event Horizon, Homo Prometheus and the Climate Catastrophe, the description begins with this statement, quote, with the advent of global warming and the nuclear arms race, humans are rapidly approaching a moment of truth. Later in the description, you write, existentialist philosophy offers a way of coping with the unthinkable. What is the moment of truth, and how can existentialist philosophy help us, help prepare us poor mortal humans in light of this moment of truth? Yes, I'm I'm glad that you've uh, raised this point. because it's something which uh, well, everyone, I'd say, who is aware of the evidence has to grapple with. Uh, the moment of truth is really our generations. We are the first generation which, and that's something which actually Barack Obama said, we are the first generation which is facing a serious climate change, and we are the last one which can do anything about it. Uh, as to existential theory, well, this can become personal. Um, Existentialism, as you know, um, 
it allows you to accept uh, the evidence, accept life as it is, uh, and it uh, emphasizes the moment in um, Sartre's and uh, Camus' existentialism, uh, the hero of Sisyphus, uh, towards all his life pushing a rock up to the top of the mountain. And the only time that he has any reward and insight is when he turns around after having pushed the rock and looks uh, over the horizon. Well, living for the moment, that's basically it. And in fact, in a way, life has always been for the moment. Now it's uh, what's happening to the planet. In previous years, uh, my parents and, and grandparents' generations, they were trying to survive through world wars, World War One, World War Two, which also looked like the end. So um, the philosophy, existentialist philosophy, is one way to try and, uh, and cope with what's happening. Of course, religion is the other one. And I, I envy religious people. Uh, they can look at the world and they can say, well, God has given and God has taken. May God be blessed. But I happen not to be religious. So to me, existential philosophy is important. Would you consider yourself a Stoic? A what Stoic? Would you consider yourself you a Stoic? Did you say Stoic? Because your personal philosophy sounds a lot like Stoicism to me. Would you consider yourself a Stoic? Well, I don't live a Stoic way of life. I'm trapped in a modern world in the suburb. Uh, we are drive vehicles, we use the electronic medium, uh, we are saved by medical science. I'm not a stoic in terms of my way of life, uh, but in terms of the way I, I feel and think, uh, I love nature. I've been a geologist much of my life. I love the animals, I love the birds. I think, I feel and I think there's a lot of evidence that particularly the birds, are extremely intelligent creatures, uh, both individually and in um, combination in flocks. So I have a deep admiration towards nature, and I grieve. I grieve when I think that what we're doing to the climate and to the earth is going to take them down with us. That's great. I think Kevin has a question now about poetry, of all things. And maybe that ties into what we've been talking about in the last few minutes. Kevin? Yes, it absolutely does. Um, one of the things that I learned from Andrew the last time that we interviewed you was that um, you write poetry. And I've got one of your poetry books. And I think that it's important for a lot of us who are studying closely what's happening around us and, and, and grieving, as you use the word grief, and... I, I'm glad that you did, because so few people admit it. We're all grieving. Anyone who who is engaged with the natural world and seeing what's happening is grieving. My antidote to despair is to volunteer at a nursery that we have on our island, a native tree nursery, and I'm involved in a rewilding project. And I know that the outcome of that project isn't going to be great in the long run, but it's still something for me to do in the short term to maintain my sanity. Are you still writing poetry? 
much of my poetry I have written uh, some 20, uh, 25 years ago, which uh, published, uh, was self-published in books. And uh, I'm glad you have one of these books, and I can certainly send you whatever later poetry I've written. But nowadays, uh, I haven't been writing that much, but uh, it does reflect my... Uh, well, my spirit, I suppose. Um, so it's uh, anyone who likes to know how I feel. Rather than ask me, <laughs> best look at the poems I've written. But then time has changed. I've written most of these poems before the climate has uh, really started closing in on us. Although I was very concerned, I still am very concerned about the nuclear issue. Well, we're getting close to the end of our time here. I'd like to give a big thank you to Professor Andrew Glickson for joining us on today's show. Yes, it's a pleasure talking to you, too. Um, you some of the people who are both aware and deeply care about what's happening to the earth. Not everybody does. Uh, I don't, I'm dismayed when I see and meet people who um, have not taken this issue to heart. But then they live for the moment, and I suppose we're all trying to do that in our different ways. Yeah, there's a lot of cogn cognitive dissonance about the whole issue where people just can't confront it. Hey, Andrew, I'm going to have to wrap the show now. Um, thank you so much for your time again. I really appreciate it. And I also have to thank Afrazen for our theme music. You can catch NBL on PRN the first Tuesday afternoon of the month at 3 p.m. Eastern Time. Our next episode is scheduled to air live on January the 5th, 2021. If you missed the broadcast, you can find shows in the archives at prn.fm, the Podbeam, at Stitcher, and feel free to rate us on iTunes. Go well, Andrew. Thank you very much, Kevin. I really appreciate uh, talking with you both. Thank you. Thank you for joining us again. Yeah.